0: Let me pray for us just as we're standing. Gracious Heavenly Father and Sovereign Lord, I thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. I thank you that you are the shepherd who leads us on. And we seek to trust you this morning. Whatever our life might entail, we do pray especially for those of us who are mothers, whatever that means for us. Uh, that there would be a renewal of an ability to trust you in the joyful and trying journey of motherhood. We pray that you would meet with us all and draw close to us this morning and remind us again that you can be trusted. I pray that my words from your word, the teaching this morning, and as Chris leads us through communion, To close our service through these two great reminders of your love and your mercy and your goodness, we might renew that trust again in Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour. For some of us, it might mean discovering or affirming that trust for the first time in Jesus. We pray that you would do that now. So we ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. 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 Please do take a seat this morning. Uh, Thank you very much to Kate and Dee. And Dave and Jeff, for leading us in some singing to start us off, and it's fantastic to welcome you here uh, on Mothering Sunday, especially if you're if you're new or visiting us for the very first time, it's it's great to have you um, here. I want to think this morning a little bit uh, about a message to be told and to be trusted, a message to be tro- told and to be trusted. Um let me tell you a, a little story first of all, a week ago on Thursday, I was in John Wilden Primary School, John Wilden Primary Academy. I'm there about every four to six weeks taking an assembly. And assemblies at John Wilden are just after lunch. In fact, the teachers at John Wilden tell me that they've changed their assembly slot because the children are so hyper- after a pastor Alex Assembly. They need to go straight into break time and not actually into lessons. So it happens in the afternoon slot. So what it means is I turn up and as I'm getting uh, the the big hall ready for assembly, um, the catering staff, the kitchen staff are clearing up after lunch. There's a 10 minute window. As I'm getting ready, they're clearing up. And each six weeks or so, I have a lovely little chat with one of the ladies who works in the kitchen. I don't actually know her name. It's got to that point, you know what it's like, where you've spoken to someone for so long, you can't now ask what they're called. The relationship has gone beyond that. Now, when I'm in John Wilder, I wear a bright yellow t-shirt. And in about eight inch high letters across my back. It says Pastor Alex. So she knows my name and has from the beginning. Anyway, that's not part of the story. It's just an awkward social moment I have to live through. But me and her have this lovely, lovely chat. I I know all sorts of things about her. I know she's 62 years old. I know she goes on holiday to Tenerife twice a year. Uh, I know that she doesn't actually need to work financially, but she loves having the spare cash and having something to do uh, during the day. All sorts of things about her. We have these lovely chats. She's not someone who is a person of faith at all. But always in our three, four minute conversations, always she asked something about religion or spirituality or something uh, along those lines. And a week ago on Thursdays, we we're chatting away. She was sharing a little bit about the challenges and joys of parenting her grown son it's dawning on me as I speak to some of you further along the parenting journey it doesn't stop does it when they leave home at 18 or 21 or 37 or whenever it is that they they finally leave home it carries on doesn't it right the way through she was sharing me some of the joys and trials of uh, her 30 something year old um, son who's living with her at the moment and then she looked at me said Alex I wish I had your faith I wish I had your faith I wonder if you've ever had someone say that to you I wonder if you've ever thought it when you've looked at someone else I wish I had your faith when someone says that to me and it said remarkably often I find I always respond like I did to this dear lady a, a week or so ago I say, well actually you can you most certainly can have my faith and she responded more adamantly than most going no 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 I, I, I there's no way I possibly could See, underlining that idea of of you have a faith that I couldn't access is the idea that this thing called faith is somehow quite subjective. It's somehow not something that is accessible for everybody. So it's an idea, for example, that faith is some sort of self-generated reassurance when we feel weak. I wonder if you've ever thought or heard someone say faith is just an emotional crutch. Or a psychological crutch to see you through a period of your life when things are difficult. It's just an emotional or psychological crutch. Or, or perhaps it's just a cu- culturally inherited disposition. You've grown up in a society or culture or a family which has given you a disposition towards faith. And so you're going to be a person of faith. I couldn't be because my culture or my upbringing or my family just wasn't a faith kind of family Um, Richard Dawkins, the Oxford professor, in a number of his books, he writes about a, a faulty DNA sequence, that's actually a quote from him, that some of us are born with a faulty DNA sequence, which means we're gonna have faith, a bit like an irritating rash or skin disorder that your genetics mean you're gonna have. All of those understandings of faith, you see, say faith is something that is limited to just one category of people. And I may or may not be in that category, uh, but it's not something that is accessible to everybody. Now, uh, this week, Uh, It's actually the penultimate week of our little series called Glad You Asked. Questions, if you like, that people might ask us and we might find a bit difficult to answer or questions we have in our own minds but we find a bit difficult to answer. Uh, And instead of kind of going, I don't have anything to say about that or I'm not sure what the right answer is, we want to be able to respond with, well, I'm glad you asked that. If you remember, uh, it's about three months ago now, we did a survey and we asked you Uh, What did you want Chrissy and I to to speak on? And this question of what is faith was one of the big things that came back from that survey. What does it mean to have faith? What actually is a true definition of faith? Is faith something that everybody can have? Or is it only limited to those with a certain personality or emotion or gender? Some people think uh, being religious is more of a feminine thing, for example. What actually is faith? Now, in the Bible, faith actually is not subjective at all. In the Bible, faith is never referred to in the way that we refer to it when we say something like, well, you've just got to have faith. It's actually an objective thing. Faith or belief in the Bible mean a coherent trust In what you reliably know about someone. A coherent trust in what you reliably know about someone. You've been told something and you trust in what you've been told. In that sense, actually true faith, the real understanding of what the Bible would say of faith, is better described as trust in what you know about Jesus. It's a little bit like a, a child who trusts their good parent. They've learned that their parent is trustworthy to be obeyed and followed, and therefore they have faith in their parent. They trust their parent. Or it's a little bit uh, like how a soldier relates to a good captain. They've learned that their captain can be trusted. It's not blind faith. It's not a kind of faith that only some of the soldiers in the unit can have because of their personality or upbringing, no. It's a coherent trust in what they know about their captain. He has proven herself, himself, to be trustworthy. Therefore, coherently, rationally, sensibly, they trust him or trust her. Or it's a little bit like how I relate to our car, which is not hoovering it every day and keeping it neat and tidy. I gave up that battle on child number two, but I trust my car to get us from point A to point B. Because it has a proven track record of being trustworthy. From what I know about that car, I can trust it. Now notice in all three of those illustrations, it does not mean trust or faith or belief is about knowing everything there is to know. A child, by definition, does not know everything their parent knows. In fact, they may not understand why their parent yells at them, stop! but they've learnt to trust and so they obey. They trust what is told even without all the information. They can't see the speeding car that's coming down the road. Or the soldier doesn't know all the tactical and strategic information that the captain knows. But he trusts his captain because of what he knows in his captain. Equally, I couldn't tell you the complexities of the internal combustion engine or how a gearbox, gearbox mechanics works or what happens when I press the go button in our car. I struggle with the radio, right? It's not about knowing everything. It's about trusting in what you do know. Coherent and reliable trust. Now, I want to show you three places in the Bible where that is how faith is understood. Trust, and then I want to spend a little bit more time on one particular place in the Bible trying to show what I think are the three things we need to be told and trust in Jesus. So let me show you three places quickly where this idea of faith being coherent trust in what we know about Jesus as true faith. Turn with me, if you would, if you've got a Bible there, to John chapter 20. You can look it up on your phone or if uh, there's a Bible, you could look out there. I'm going to read it. John 20 is on page 1090, page 1090 of these churches' Bibles. John chapter 20. And look at sentence 30 and 31. So it's page 1090 and it's the top left-hand column and it's under a little title called The Purpose of John's Gospel. This is what it says, page 1090. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you see what John is saying? He's saying there's this huge collection of evidence, of stories about Jesus, of what Jesus said and did. And John says, I've collected these ones together. In fact, he's collected 20 chapters worth of things Jesus has said and done. I've written them down for you so that you may trust. You may believe. I've provided you with the evidence So you now can coherently trust what you have been told about Jesus. Do you see the flow? Belief comes from that evidence. Turn with me to a second one, Acts chapter 26. This is on page 1124. Page 1124. Acts chapter 26. And sentences 24 to 29. This is the right hand column of page 1124. A man called Paul, who's one of the earliest messengers of of the truths about Jesus and the story about Jesus, is talking to two highfaluting political figures, a Festus and a Gripper. Um, Amazingly, when I was at theological college, I actually trained with two people called Festus and Agrippa. I never thought I'd actually meet people called Festus and Agrippa, but I did. And look how, as I read it, sentence 24 through to 29, look how Paul is going out of his way to rationally recount the story of Jesus so that Festus and Agrippa might respond in trusting in what they've been told, coherent trust in what they reliably know. Sentence 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. Paul's made a long, a verbal monologue talking about who Jesus is, telling about Jesus. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Do you see that? It's not blind faith. It's not emotional. It's not a step into the unknown. It's true and it's reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner, hidden away. It's right there for everyone to read about and know about. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Uh, That's my prayer as well, actually, is that all who are listening today may become like I am, i.e. a truster of Jesus. Someone who has heard the message about Jesus as Paul is (coughs) recounting it to Festus and Agrippa and respond with, with coherent trust. Let's have a look at one last one, if you would. Uh, Romans chapter 10. Turn with me a few more pages. 1,137. It's just a few more pages to the right, isn't it? 1,137. Romans chapter 10. It's Paul now writing a letter, a long letter, about who Jesus is. And sentences 14 and 15. Middle-ish of the right-hand column, page 1,137. Paul writes, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe, trust in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful of feet are those who bring good news. Work that backwards, do you see? If they're going to believe, they have to hear. If they're gonna hear, They have to be told. If they're going to be told, someone has to be sent. Do you see? Belief is a coherent trust in what you've been told about Jesus. Let's just pause and get our wits around us for a moment and just think about what that means for a moment for us as individuals, but also for people like my growing friendship with the lady at John Weldon's school. And I must find her name. I'm going to have to send one of the boys in undercover at lunchtime to discover her name and report back. But knowing our boys, they'll tell me it's called, she's called Festus or something equally like that. But, um, but let's just pause for a moment and think about what that means for us. We are, of course, emotional beings. It's a very important part of how God has made all of us as human beings. I'm in no way belittling that. But we swim in a culture which places our feelings and our emotions as the main driver and decision maker of what we think about things. That is the culture that we happen to swim in, both church-wise, actually, uh, in 2017, and society more broadly. Therefore, lots of us, as Christians, authentic, genuine Christians, but lots of us pin our faith on how we feel. If we feel like Jesus is close to us, if we feel like he is blessing us, if we feel like we've been touched by the songs we've sung or the preaching has spoken to our heart, then we say our faith is high and strong. But actually, when we feel that life is a bit hard, when we feel like things aren't quite going away, when we feel like God is distant and far from us, we say our faith is very low. See, we've fallen into the trap of defining faith totally wrongly. We've located faith in the wrong organ, in the organ of our heart. Faith in the Bible is placed in the organ of our mind. A rational, considered, thought through, persuaded, trust in what we know is true. What we know is reliable about Jesus from the Bible, the written record of him. Now from the mind, it pumps through to our heart and out into our lives. It fully engages our emotions and our activity, but it starts here. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 verse one, he says, therefore, my dearest brothers and sisters, uh, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind as you rationally trust Jesus and allow that to define your trust in him. Now, what I want to do is to have a look at one last passage and try and give you the three markers of what we've been told about Jesus that I think we need to trust And why I'm doing that is because 10 days ago, a week ago on Thursday, when this lovely lady asked me this question and said, I wish I had your faith. And I said, you can. And she said, no, no, I possibly couldn't. I said, no, yes, you can. She said, no, no, you possibly couldn't. No, she didn't really. Uh, But what I did, I had a little pocket Bible in, and I pulled this passage out that we're going to look at. And I said, let me show you what faith is. It's simply trusting these three things. And if we can look at these three things, and you at the end can in your mind go yes, yes, and yes, then you have my faith, you have my faith. She was able to say yes, no, yes. Two out of three, so close, so close, so close. Turn with me to Mark chapter eight, would you? That means turn uh, to the left of your Bibles. Um, Mark chapter eight, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark chapter 8 is on page 1012. This is the last time we'll turn pages. It's so fantastic to hear so many pages turning. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, by the way, do take one of these church's Bibles home with you. Our free gift to you. Really important you have a Bible at home to read. So if you haven't got one at home, just, just take one in your bag um, and take it home with you today. Mark chapter 8, a trio of things we are told and need to trust in. The first one is Jesus, his identity, who he is. The second one is his ambition, what he has done, what he did. And the third one is the consequence for us, what it means for us. Here's the first one, then. Who is Jesus? Look at sentence 27. I love this little story. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. What a fantastic little conversation that is. There's, there's a couple of contrasts to draw between sentence 28 and sentence 29. The first all is who Jesus is talking about initially. The first question he asked, do you see that? He says, who do the people say I am? He's saying, who do the crowd say I am? What's public opinion about who people think I am? What, what's the rumour mill about me? What are they all saying? But then he turns the question round in sentence 29 and he says, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Do you see that contrast, first of all? Uh, he starts with a general idea, kind of what, what's the general sense of who people say I am? And, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say I am? It's the first thing we need to realise, actually, is we can, take a, uh, uh, we can take a poll, if you like, of what the public is saying about who Jesus is and come up with all sorts of possible answers. He's a, a good moral teacher. He was a miracle worker. He's a mythical legend. He's a, he's a forgotten ancient figure. He's irrelevant for today. Long list of possible answers. That's great. That's what the public are saying. That's what the crowd are saying. Yeah, but what about you? What, what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? <coughs> you see the second contrast um, is just how specific that question is. It's easy to ask public opinion, isn't it? It's a bit like saying, um, who, who, uh, what was the, the outcome of the EU referendum? You can just answer that, can't you? Who does the crowd say Jesus is? Very different to say, um, how did you vote in the referendum? That's very personal, isn't it? In fact, many of us would kind of go, that's not very British to ask that question, is it? Yeah. Because it reveals something about us, doesn't it? That kind of personal question. So it is here. It's easy to answer the question, "Uh, what's the general opinion about Jesus? It's very different to be asked the question, well, what do you think about Jesus? But most important is to notice the different answers around Jesus's identity. The crowd, do you see that sentence 28? They replied, some of the crowd are saying you're John the Baptist. Others are saying Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. They're not saying literally Jesus is a reincarnation of one of these people. What they're saying is Jesus is in the, late, the latest in the line of these fantastic individuals who have revolutionized community and society and culture. He's another special one. That's what they're saying. If they live in this day and age, they'd add Muhammad and the original Martin Luther and the contemporary Martin Luther King to the list. They're saying Jesus is another one of these spectacularly amazing once in a generation reformers and social changers. He is so special. I'd be happy to fall in that category, wouldn't you? Once in a generation kind of make it, don't they? Yeah. But then look how Peter responds to the question. Verse 29, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Are you also saying I'm special? You've really been up close and personal in my life. Do you think I'm special? Peter answered, you are the Messiah or you are the Christ. See, amazingly, Jesus here is not satisfied with being called special. He pushes harder. He says, I don't want to be special. I don't want to be seen as equivalent of Mohammed or Gandhi. Or Martin Luther King? That's not enough for me, says Jesus. So he pushes it. Who do you say I am, though? You've been up close and personal. And Peter says, you're the Christ. Now, the word Christ literally means anointed or unique. Not one in the latest of these great people, but the one and only. Not another in a long line of awesome reformers but the one and only God in human form. That's what Christ means. You're the Christ. So the first thing we're told in the Bible, the first thing, this accurate record of Jesus, is, is telling us to trust in, a coherent trust, is that Jesus is not special. In fact, we mustn't demean Jesus by suggesting to ourselves or people that he's like Napoleon or Alexander or Margaret Thatcher, all of whom have great attached to them, don't they? Napoleon the Great, Alexander the Great, Thatcher the Great, depending on your political persuasion. (laughs) But we mustn't demean Jesus by calling him merely great on on a short list of others. He's not great. He's unique. He's the only He's in an utterly different category. He is God. So there's the first thing we're told in the Bible, the first thing to trust in, the first thing that faith is made up in. Do you see that from the evidence that Jesus is God, unique? What's the second? It's what did Jesus come to do? Did you notice the oddity of sentence 30 if you've got a Bible there? Peter's just blurted out, you're the Christ, wow, you're the unique one. They should all be cheering, balloons, party poppers, high fives, hugs if you're American. Woo, you're the Christ! Then do you see what Jesus says? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Well, why is that? They've just realised who he is. Surely that could be broadcast and shouted out as far as they could go. Well, the reason is, is because they think this means Jesus has come to change everything there and then. He's going to overthrow the Roman occupation that is suppressing them as a people. Jesus is going to take control right there and then. He's not. That's not what he came to do. That is not what he came to do. So he shushes them. Look what he came to do. Sentence 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's a favoured nickname Jesus gives to himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. His ambition, as God's unique one, with all power and all authority, his ambition is to die as scum and criminal. That's what he came to do. Now, when I was talking to this lady 10 days or so ago, and she said, why, why would he do that? I said to her, I like to think about it with two words, sat- satisfying substitution. A satisfying substitution. The what's going on here, you see, is actually all of us, good, bad, or indifferent, all of us have lived a life which rightly God is somewhat disappointed with, frustrated with, irritated by and angry at. Amazingly, Jesus says, I will substitute myself in your place to satisfy that rightful anger so you can go free of it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. What he came to do, even though he's God himself, even though he's the unique one, even though he's the one with absolute power, authority and rule of perfect purity and perfect excellence, he dies in our place, substitutes himself there so God's anger is satisfied so we might go free. I'd love to preach a three-month series of sermons on that, and maybe one day we will, but it's right at the heart of Christianity. And then lastly, the third marker of what it is to be told and trust, what it means to have faith. First, that we trust from the evidence that Jesus is God. Secondly, that we trust from the evidence that he died in our place for us, a substitution that's satisfied. thirdly is our commitment, what it means really to follow him, to attach ourselves to him. Look at sentence 34. It says this, Then Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. You see, the call to follow Jesus has wonderful joy, wonderful purpose, wonderful meaning. Uh, but it also has a cost and a commitment. When Chrissy was preaching two or three weeks ago, uh, spontaneously in the middle of her sermon, I think it was three weeks ago or so, and she picked up on it afterwards as well and I picked up on it as well. She just blurted out, following Jesus will ruin your life. Do you, I don't know if anyone remembers that. And she came up to me afterwards and said, Alex, I I didn't mean to say that. Is that okay that I said that? And I said, you didn't just say that, Chrissy. You went, following Jesus is going to ruin your life. No, I mean it, ruin your life. (laughs) She was doing what Jesus is doing here. We default to embrace the blessing that comes with following Jesus. We default to embrace that. And there is great blessing. And we lose sight of the fact that when it comes to following Jesus, there is a commitment that if Jesus himself suffered, if he suffered, we will suffer. If we attach ourselves to a crucified Christ, there is an expectation that his experience will mimic our experience, that life following Jesus is not easy, is not easy. And it interests me so much here that... In sentence 34, it says Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples. His disciples are already following him. The crowd aren't there yet, are they? They're still pondering. But all of them, before that step of commitment, he invites all of them to realize there is a cost to be counted before you begin the journey with Jesus. He doesn't slot it in afterwards. Wait till he's got them baptised, members of the church, involved in a small group, and then say, you didn't read the small print, did you? And so there I am, leaning over the counter with this lovely, lovely, lovely old lady, young lady. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, This lovely lady. Uh, Having done that last 15 minutes in two with her, and she's saying to me, Alex, why are you telling me I need to take up my cross? that sounds horrendous that's like this is great she said that's like you saying to me Alex you need to take up your electric chair well like, yes it is it's the same isn't it symbol of crucifixion of death of execution why are you telling me that I'm, I said I'm not Jesus is he called the crowd he called everyone and said you need to know this commitment before you begin So, what I'm going to invite us to do, Chris is going to lead us in communion in a moment. Uh, Kate's going to lead us in a couple more songs. I'm going to invite us to think about what faith means for you. Think about the organ that faith has been attached to in your life, historically and right now. Is it attached to your heart and your emotions? And therefore, ebbs and flows with your emotional state? Or is it attached in your mind as a rational, considered trust in what you have been told? I want you to think about those three markers. It's trust, a rational trust from the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, his identity. It's a rational trust from the evidence of the cross, Jesus' death for you. It's a rational trust in the evidence of the commitment to follow him, Christ, his cross, and our commitment. And are are there any of those three that you need to revisit this morning and say, actually, I haven't quite got three out of three. What do I need to re-examine? What do I need to trust freshly in? His identity, his ambition, his death for me, the commitment to follow him, the cross I carry. And then lastly, some of us might want to think about friends, family members, others we know, who we have heard them express to us something about a desire for faith, uh, an envy of our faith, I wish I had your faith, A, a rejection of our faith, it's just an emotional crutch. And revisit those conversations or think about how those conversations might go in the future and how you might talk to someone about faith not being something that comes from your heart, not being something that is only culturally defined or about personality but faith being accessible to everyone because it is a rational trust in what you know to be true. Trust what's being told. Trust what's being told. Let's have a minute's quiet and then I'll pray for us and then Kate will lead us in a song and then and Chris and Kate will kind of lead us through as we remember Christ and his death through communion and reaffirm our trust in those things. Let's have a minute's quiet.